Hello world and welcome to Podcast in A Minor, where I bring you the weird little songs I write and then give you the stories behind them. Weird stories, creepy stories, funny stories, whatever the world gives us in all its glorious mystery. And now for today's opening song. Welcome to Podcast in A Minor. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and an artist, and I'm in one of my moods. You just heard Hotel President on the Gibson SG electric guitar from way back in April of 2020, before the old man had it set up for slide guitar, which neither of us really plays, and from before I started hoarding blue lipstick, before my hair got long again like in college, I just let it have me, that special brand of social anxiety reserved for the salon chair. Oh man, do I have to make conversation? I don't really want to, but I'll feel so rude. I'll have a neck headache from tensely wondering if I am being rude. This anxiety really got rolling in my secondary infertility days when every last stylist would ask me how many kids I had. Every damn time. That question no longer agitates me, but my haircut requires cutting pretty much a line across the back and snipping at the bangs a little. $17 for that? Plus social anxiety? I don't actually know what haircuts cost anymore, but my hair is long enough and just wavy enough that I can cut it myself without any crooked places looking like mistakes. At least I think so. I can't see back there. I'm sure it's great. So, hey, this is the 40th episode of Podcast in A Minor, and we're going to celebrate with self-indulgent topics. I wrote the song Hotel President amid my You could say whining days living in a North Dallas suburb in Texas. Life circumstances and all that. I had this memory of the song just falling out of the sky, complete and perfect, when I was contemplating getting out of bed one morning. But in the last couple of years, as I mined my Texas journals for poetry to publish, I found that there were notes on the song with a month or two in between them. Weird how memory works. Probably the first verse fell out and then I added to it later. As for the hotel president itself, it stands in downtown Kansas City, the big metropolis right next to my hometown, and the old movie look of the hotel, red brick with president spelled out in tall rooftop letters, attracted me since I took a graduate class in library and information sciences downtown in the late 90s. 
The hotel president was built in 1926, and to my intense dismay, when you Google it now, it comes up as Hilton President Hotel, and friggin' Hilton.com gives the following description with the asinine headline, 1920s charm in Kansas's power and light district. Using just an apostrophe to make Kansas possessive, instead of adding apostrophe S, by the way, huh, to the description. Recognized by Historic Hotels of America, our building has stood in downtown Kansas City's Power and Light District since 1926. We're surrounded by theaters and restaurants, two blocks from Sprint Center events and Kansas City Convention Center. Enjoy our authentic 20s-style hangouts, once popular with the likes of Frank Sinatra. Okay, fun, Frank Sinatra and all that, and maybe I sounded irate when I introduced that blurb, but while the Power and Light District is located in Kansas City, it is not in the state of Kansas, thank you. I'm sorry if that's confusing. It's in Kansas City, Missouri, quite near the state line, I grant you, but firmly in the state of Missouri, nonetheless. And there is a Kansas City, Kansas, but that's a different one. From the internet on a Kansas City, Kansas search. Kansas City sits on the eastern edge of Kansas at the border with Missouri. It's home to the Kansas Speedway, which hosts NASCAR races and has a casino. Vast Wyandotte County Lake Park offers trails, a playground, and boat rentals. At the confluence of the Kansas and Missouri Rivers, Caw Point Park marks the site where the Lewis and Clark Expedition camped in 1804 and has views of the downtown skyline. Population, 154,545 in 2021. Elevation, 869 feet. Area, 128.3 miles squared. Area code 913. And whereas, from the Kansas City, Missouri search, Kansas City sits on Missouri's western edge, straddling the border with Kansas. It's known for its barbecue, jazz, heritage, and fountains. Downtown, the American Jazz Museum shares a building with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. The the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art continued, and I didn't let the whole thing print. So, population 508,394 in 2021. Local time, Monday, 8.09 a.m., at least when I printed this off. Mayor Quinton Lucas, elevation 909 feet. Okay, beautiful work, Internet. You admirably distinguished Kansas City, Missouri from Kansas City, Kansas. However, your KCK blurb slideshow shows its NASCAR Speedway, but also Kansas City Moe's Union Station and Country Club Plaza. Good Lord, people. But I didn't realize Kansas City, quote, straddles the border with Kansas. Possible clarification, question mark. So here's a a clarification, we hope. People also ask, is Kansas City in Kansas or Missouri or both? Today, Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri remain two separately incorporated cities, but together, along with a number of other cities and suburbs, as part of the Kansas City metropolitan area. Yeah, I get that. Like, Kansas City, Kansas is a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. (laughs) Cool. Wow, I got agitated just there. I know, I know, locals in their anguish. Funny. So here's the main thing that you need to know. The Kansas City you hear about in sleazy old movie references is Kansas City, Missouri, which is my Kansas City, as I think of it, which is also the setting of the 1996 movie Kansas City, starring Jennifer Jason Leigh, set in the 1930s, which did persuade me to cut off 14 inches of my hair that fall after seeing the movie three times. Now, some quick examples of the name of Kansas City being invoked on film to convey sleaze. 
1952 Fritz Lang film Clash by Night, and a paraphrased conversation around perfume between Barbara Stanwyck and Marilyn Monroe. Monroe, oh, that perfume is divine. Did you get it in Paris? Stanwyck, no, at a drugstore in Kansas City. And the opposite of Paris, if you will, Kansas City, Missouri. Secondly, an episode of the Munsters in which Grandpa was attempting to zap himself to Transylvania, I believe, and calls up the family on the phone who ask, are you in Transylvania? No, I'm at the Happy Valley Motel in Kansas City. Every time something like this happens, I just laugh uproariously. Giddy with sleaze. And this seems the best place to mention the non-hotel president-related reference back when we all watched The Wonder Years back in junior high. Seriously, there weren't as many entertainment options in 1987, and we all genuinely watched The Wonder Years on Thursday night or whenever, and then convened at school on Friday to discuss. At one point, Kevin Arnold mentioned his father's prized possession, a coffee mug with two fish playing poker on it, along with the phrase, greetings from Independence, Missouri. This was even better than a sleazy Kansas City reference because it shouted out our actual town, not just the nearby metropolis. Boom. Still, back to the erroneous Kansas Power and Light mention on Hilton.com, Wikipedia points out that the hotel president's new Hiltonness refers to its now being operated under Jury Hotel Group of Overland Park, Kansas like the ritziest town in Kansas, as far as I know. Thus, the confusion at the hands of Hilton, whose writer of that description probably can't point to Missouri or Kansas on a map. Aren't Americans notoriously crappy at geography? I couldn't keep the northeastern states straight for ages. They're so little. Did I tell you about the time I flew into Kansas City from Dallas to see my folks, and as we were landing, the flight attendant said, welcome to Kansas, three times, and we kept looking around at each other until the third time when enough was too much, and we all called out, Missouri, in polite chorus. I mean, we were all hoping it was Missouri we were landing in, that's where my uncle was picking me up. Okay, from kchistoryadventures.com, they provide the following description from the National Register of Historic Places. And this is about the hotel president. This 15-story corner building has its main facade facing west with a frontage of 130 feet on Baltimore and 108 feet on West 14th Street. The building incorporates Jacobethan elements in its design, particularly in its rectangular windows and rectangular lights created by stone mullions. The segmental curved gables, which rise above the roof line at all four corners, and the strapwork ornament found in great quantity over the facade. And I found a hotel president menu with prices. I love food details. Here we go. Okay. It says between meals selections. And like, let's just look at a couple of examples. Well, they have uh, cold sandwiches for 15 cents and 25 cents. The American cheese sandwich is 15 cents. The baked ham, 25 cents. Hot sandwiches, like... Bacon and egg uh, is 20 cents. Bacon and egg or Denver. So I guess a Denver kind of omelet thing. Steak sandwich, 30 cents. The print is really tiny. I'm doing my damnedest here. Okay, let's see. Ooh, hi. Oh my gosh, you guys. You could get freaking pecan waffle for 25 cents. When was this glorious era? I always search the beverages section for just creme de menthe served on its own as a like cordial because of something that made me put it in the song, but we'll get back to that a little later. I mean, who loves an old menu? I do. I used to dig for old menus on the internet during my old switchboard days for story writing purposes. 
The reference to creme de menthe in the opening song might have come from a more complete drum room menu I was able to find back then. I found another, dated September 22, 1956, from an auction that didn't provide pictures of the entire menu, but it's also possible I had looked up the Chasen's menu for a story revolving around a young Burt Ward, TV's Robin, from the 1960s Batman. It was important to set a scene in Chasen's restaurant because of the recurring phrase, at Chasen's with Suzanne Plachette, in the 1996 movie, That Thing You Do. Now, before we visit the drum room, I must acknowledge the strange events of room 1046 and the mysterious death of Roland T. Owen. Yes, I want to launch into this big time, but I'm uncharacteristically busy this week. Seldom record these things until the last minute, and I'd really like to do it justice if possible. So perhaps we'll have a bonus episode reprising the all-purpose murder ballad of episode 13, or at some point, a whole other episode with a Roland-specific murder ballad. Oh, the possibilities. Thank you for your patience. The drum room, as mentioned on the Hilton site, is the swanky club room at the Hotel President. I haven't checked in a while, but during my library class days, you could still read, Visit the Drum Room, painted on the outside bricks of the hotel. Excerpted from the wonderful article, Jazz Greats Still Echo at Drum Room Lounge in Kansas City by Lauren Walser, when it opened in 1926, the Hotel President was the first hotel in Kansas City that was able to produce its own ice. Too bad it was the middle of Prohibition and that ice couldn't be used to make a cocktail. Oh, it probably could. You know how it is. Uh, that was my sentence. Uh, back to the article. Not to worry, there are plenty of cocktails to be had in the hotel's drum room lounge today. The most popular is the drum room old-fashioned. But the others are just as good and have presidential names to boot. There's the true Manhattan with old granddad bonded whiskey, sweet vermouth, and Jerry Thomas bitters. Or try the Calvin Coolidge fizz with cucumber-infused gin, simple syrup, mint, and hopped grape grapefruit bitters. The First Lady is another favorite with St. Hilaire and St. Germain. Walser goes on to inform us that the hotel's architects were Shepard and Weiser and that the hotel was, quote, one of Kansas City's most elegant hotels when it opened, featuring an ornate lobby and mezzanine and 453 guest rooms. In 1928, two years after its doors opened, it was headquarters for the Republican National Convention. It was there that Herbert Hoover was nominated for president. End quote. The Drum Room Lounge opened later in 1941. Quote, a swanky restaurant and bar. The large circular room featured a big drum-shaped bar in the middle. There was live music almost every night, end quote. Kansas City was famous for its jazz, and some legendary musicians were drawn to the drum room. Benny Goodman, Frank Sinatra, Glenn Miller, Patsy Cline, and others. According to Philip Sternud, the hotel's general manager, as quoted in Walser's article, Anyone who was performing in Kansas City would come to the drum room. Oh, that's great stuff. Wow, I'm pretty electrified by this topic. Some kind of calming, logical hum took me over whenever I'd see that invitation to the drum room in faded paint on the side of the building, almost as if I belong there. Not as spooky as in The Shining, no, really. But I do have a history of creating vivid dream worlds, also known as poetry, story, and song, and they often involve historic places. Before we move on from this one, Walser provides the drum room's best Yelp review. A classic, classy, 
cocktail lounge that plays up Kansas City's heritage as a slightly seedy entertainment destination of decades gone by. The bartenders are well-dressed and old-school polite. The menu is comprised of drinks giving a wink and a nod to KC heritage. Example given, the true Manhattan. Space is limited, but both times our group of four visited, we easily found a spot on a Friday night. Anywhere that touts itself as a former hangout of Frank Sinatra is good in my book. Next up, I'll give you the abstracts of my favorite Perry Mason episodes, right after a more enthusiastic and current rendition of Perry's verse in the song. The opening version is three years old, and back then, I was timid about putting my music out there. Not my songwriting, I was pretty convinced it was rock solid, but I braced for criticism of my rudimentary guitar skills and untrained voice. I mean, I have always sung in the car and the shower and such, if you call that untrained. It's the poor man's Juilliard. Yes, let us scurry to the song now. Barry Mason, I know what you're on So dyspeptic and they give me butterflies And an acting like so grandfatherly I know I bore you, but I don't let any of it bother me My life could be better spent in Kansas City At the Hotel President Can you hear me? The coffee can't be beat In the drum room I'd wear my Cardan knockoff. That's Pierre Cardan, the 20th century designer. It's just a knockoff, though. I got it at a drugstore in Kansas City. Now onward to my favorite Perry Mason episodes. Oh, Wikipedia has a fine episode guide, but it was a lot to wade through. So I decided to wade through my sadly neglected Instagram account at look at her brooch with the underscores in between the words, under the hashtag Perry Mason Brooch Watch. Here are some highlights. Lee Merriweather, look at your brooch. Oh, I do idly envy her seaside artist's loft in this episode. Oops, that's two sins in one sentence. The case of the cheating chancellor. Madame Zilla is pure theater. Sue Randall, Miss Landers of Leave it to Beaver, shares my first name in this episode. Oops, it's an alias. Hashtag clairvoyant jewelry. Being related to a convicted murderer will give her acting career just the boost it needs. The Barton sisters, darling. The case of the deadly verdict. This chick has a wicked stepmother vibe, but I still find myself pondering her necklace philosophy. Oh, Paul just revealed that she was once an uninhibited Greenwich Village artist. Rad. The return of the Perry Mason brooch watch. The case of the duplicated daughter. I mean, if anyone can explain to me why the Perry Mason brooch watch did not burst into an absolute sensation, why indeed MeTV did not crown me brooch watch queen and shower me with vintage brooches, I would like to hear you try. Favorite episodes located under hashtag Perry Mason brooch watch. Them Richies got bling, Perry Mason brooch watch. Sigh, it seems my Perry Mason lottery is always coming up the case of the missing button, when I'd much rather be seeing that little old lady who unknowingly lived with a dead body concealed under her house for three years, or a bereft and bonkers Cloris Leachman toting around a plush tiger, insisting it's her baby. Darn the luck. Pearls, pearls, girl falls from a chandelier. 
Actually, she fell from a ladder next to a chandelier during fashion show preparations, but I found the above more rhythmic, lyrical, the case of the badgered brother. I don't know if that's strictly a favorite, but now I want to write a song from that post. Okay, it turns out that hashtag Perry Mason brooch watch was less helpful than I thought it would be. The rest I had to find for myself. Searching Perry Mason Chloris Leachman, I found the case of the crafty kidnapper in which the baby of a politician is swiped and Chloris Leachman as the mother is beside herself. Who wouldn't be? She, if I recall, is going on about the baby's stuffed tiger, which he can't sleep without and she's really losing it. In the end, I think the words... I killed your baby, are found written in the sand. But later, the mother is radiant because her baby has been found. Spoiler alert. She insists that Perry and the gang come upstairs to admire her child. And what do we find in the crib? The stuffed tiger. And Cloris tucks that tiger in under a blanket for his nap. In truth, she is bonkers. Never the same since her baby died a year or so ago or something like that. Her husband knew it but covered up her mental affliction for the sake of his political career. And finally, the case of the wrathful wraith from season nine. Let's just say I'd get a little breathless when this episode came up. In the days when I had no job and Perry was on sharp at 8 a.m. and I'd made the coffee. This is a proper gothic horror episode. A woman's husband was murdered and she has been charged for the crime. This is a huge strain on her psyche, and it doesn't help when it turns out that he, Jameson, wasn't dead at all. So she kills him again. I mean, you get it. This episode is so full-on horror movie from the word go that I just lose my marbles. It begins amid the murder trial, murder at the regatta. The hats in the crowd are glorious. The reporters slang us to death in phone booths when the charges are dismissed. The broached and hatted onlookers snipe and accuse under their breath. A mystic clairvoyant emerges with a message from the defendant's husband from the other side. Thundercrash, and Louise, the defendant, shrieks as they drive away. Back home at her gothic manor, Louise really flips out when old Jameson's raincoat disappears. Next, it gets real gothic as Louise roams the estate in the middle of the night in a white nightgown as curtains flutter at the creepily open French doors. Somebody slams the study door on her and she dissolves in panic when she can't get out. Her friend Rosemary answers her shrieks, reassures her, closes the French doors, and we see a hand caressing the window frame from outside in the howling wind. Suddenly, Louise finds that a pair of Jameson's cufflinks are missing. Her close pals are concerned, and Louise insists on visiting the clairvoyant as things get weirder. Our fave detective, Paul Drake, shows up, which is always agreeable. Della is present as uh, Madame, oh God, I didn't get her name, the clairvoyant, arrives with thunder and lightning. Louise screams when she sees Jameson grinning like a nut at the window, and she hears his voice telling her to find a letter in a desk drawer. It's sneaking around galore with muddy footprints and more faces and windows, and admittedly, it gets a little dry with boring people mulling over who was counting on Jameson for what funding, blah, 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 until dead Jameson calls on the phone. Louise faints, naturally. Paul Drake announces that he likes his drink served by a barmaid with long eyelashes. Oh, Paul! The man who had invited them in for a cocktail has just walked in on what he calls a housebreaker. His desk has been rifled, but nothing of value has been taken. Louise's posthumous letter from Jameson, however, is gone. 
Louise awakens screaming as Jameson whispers her, to her to give Argot the money and flings the missing raincoat at her. She wigs as the creepy jazz music blares. The doctor suggests Louise's shock might be, quote, self-induced and stops just short of saying, you know, hysterical females. Rosemary strokes her hair, stops just short of calling her a nutter, and reassures her that Jameson is dead, dear. Louise is fully paranoid by now and keeps a gun under her pillow. Rosemary dials the phone in front of an open window with flying curtains and I become a nervous wreck. Louise falls asleep in a chair and wakes to see a hatted shadow through the sheer draperies. She raises the gun, her nightgown sparkling with silver thread. Jameson hisses her name and we hear a gunshot. She has freaking shot Jameson for whose murder she has already stood trial. Louise from the slammer insists that she did not fire the gun before she, of course, fainted, waking with her head in Rosemary's lap. Louise has to stand trial again? What? No double jeopardy? Well, I guess it doesn't count if the original murder never actually happened. Hamilton Berger ridicules Louise for believing in ghosts, but swears to the judge in chambers that he is not enjoying it. He pushes for an insanity plea and institutionalization. Perry does not accept. In the end, it comes out that one of Louise's handlers in the beginning was in cahoots with the still-alive Jameson to commit a little insurance fraud to pay some debts or something. Only Louise could pay that scientist the backing money in order to glean the hypothetical profits that would pay Jameson's debts off. But his accomplice wanted the money for himself, I guess, and in that courtyard skulking struggle, the accomplice was the one who had shot Jameson. And Louise had no idea that he was still alive. The usual rigmarole, but with spooky flair. Hashtag blessed. Now how's about a nice grasshopper recipe? From that cocktails book in the basement I just found, titled Old Mr. Boston Deluxe Official Bartender's Guide, which I got from a Friends of the Library book sale aftermath back when I worked at the Columbia Public Library. Arriving at work the following morning, we staff were advised to peruse the tables from the weekend sale and take any leftover books we wanted for free. I filled a book cart with old cookbooks, some children's books such as Cat Kong, and some children's records. Then I backed my car up to the ramp by the library's back entrance and loaded up my trunk. Yes, I did. These cookbooks came in handy, as I think I've said before, when I wrote the Motherload newsletter to help the Wick moms utilize their Wick foods with absolute style and kitsch. No cocktail recipes, though, was the health department, in spite of the fact that Wick provided more milk than we could easily use up in a month, and a nice milk punch recipe might have been just dandy. But that's where the banana pudding came in. Anyway, a nice grasshopper cocktail. In the song, creme de menthe, or mint liqueur, is mentioned, and my theory is that I spied creme de menthe served alone as an option on the Chasen's restaurant menu, meaning, what a pity, we have no creme de menthe to make us pretty and sweet at the Hotel President. I love the idea of creme de menthe served on its own in a cordial glass, all green. It reminds me of a thing in Esquire magazine's handbook for hosts, published 1948. Since that moment in Texas when I read Esquire's tip that some people from other nations like to drink straight vermouth, I began drinking straight vermouth. It's gloriously weird. And one more 20th century point that enthralls me, the worship of apricot brandy. I first read that Donald Barthelm story, Games Are the Enemies of Beauty, Truth, and Sleep, Amanda said, in Mademoiselle Magazine at Ellis Library, University of Missouri, on a depressing day. 
Guys, that title, one more time. Games are the enemy of beauty, truth, and sleep, Amanda said. Couldn't you just... I mean, I made earrings based on that title and called them Games, said Amanda, earrings for my Etsy shop, but they are sold out. Anyway, green eyeshadow and apricot brandy were mentioned in that story. Apricot brandy was enjoyed by the existentialists in France and the Mr. Boston Deluxe Official Bartender's Guide, copyright 1966, same year as Games, Amanda said, appeared in Mademoiselle magazine, and it contains an entire index heading for apricot brandy drinks, featuring 46 listings, including the zombie. Now, for the promised grasshopper cocktail, simple and green with creme de menthe. Take three-fourths ounce Old Mr. Boston creme de menthe green, three-fourths of an ounce Old Mr. Boston creme de cacao white, and three-fourths of an ounce light sweet cream. Shake well with cracked ice and strain into a three-ounce cocktail glass elegant and that's hotel president this was episode 40 of podcast in a minor and a fittingly indulgent tribute when i got married years ago we lived in st louis missouri moved to columbia missouri then to texas over the course of 16 years though i was always trying to get back home to kansas city and now i'm here and i'm so glad my life is better spent here see you next time Musta, musta, the Encyclopedia Neurotica. It's my rule in the plan. I must, and I must, and I must.